Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm Chris Terracon, subbing today for Carrie and Tholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who was charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Canarak and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Canarak was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and, as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and, in the alternative, because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we concluded our review of Robert Goodwin's testimony as well as the prosecution's direct examination of Detective Andreas Zaharopoulos of the Morris County Crime Scene Investigation Unit. In this installment, we cover the cross-examination of Detective Zaharopoulos, as well as the testimony of Morse County forensic examiner and firearms expert William Stitt. That's all coming up right after the break. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. At the end of our last episode, Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn concluded his direct examination of CSI Detective Andreas Zaharopoulos. We begin today with Judge Stephen Taylor inviting defense attorney Edward Belinkus to question the witness. Cross-examination. Detective, uh, how many shell casings uh, were found at the scene? Two shell casings were recovered. Did you have a discussion with anyone prior to your uh, analysis? as to how many shots were allegedly fired. I was advised that the victim had been shot twice, and then the third one to the door. Now, the casings that are depicted on that diagram, you'll agree with me that there's really nothing you can tell with regard to their positioning, with regards to where the shots were fired. Correct. Because the casings could be disturbed prior to your arrival? Correct. Uh, Were you advised that there were 40, 50 people at the crime scene prior to your arrival? I don't know the number, but I was I knew that there had been many people within the crime scene prior to my arrival. Now, did you look for that third casing? Yes. No doubt when a bullet is fired, that casing goes along with it, correct? Correct. Uh, but in this particular instance, uh, you or any other uh, law enforcement person was not able to find that third casing, correct? We were not. Now, With regards to your analysis, when a bullet hits an object, the effect that that object has on the bullet varies with the type of substance it strikes, correct? Correct. In this particular instance, um, the bullet struck numerous different types of substances, correct? Correct. Wood, one, vinyl. Correct. And glass, correct? Yes. And and would you agree with me that uh, depending on the strength of those particular items, it affects the flight path of the bullet as it proceeds through the object. It can, yes. And again, your reconstruction um, based on uh, the rods that you used indicated that the shot was fired uh, from a 
position lower than the door, correct? Correct. And it was traveling in an upward angle uh, as it went through the door through the second window in that laundry room, correct? Correct. But is it fair to say that you can't term, determine the exact flight path or the exact location where a bullet was fired from based on your analysis? Well, it's an approximate location based on where the backstrapulation of it was. Understood. But for instance, with, with regards to this diagram, that bullet could have been fired from the front of the vehicle, correct? Correct. It could have been fired from the patio area here, correct? Correct. It could have even been fired right here in front of the bush, correct? Anywhere within that line, correct. And, and even when, if someone was on their back uh, firing the weapon, you can't determine the level at which the bullet was fired, correct? In this situation, we couldn't determine the height. So if someone was on the ground and fired the weapon, that would be consistent with your analysis, correct? It would have had to have been closer to the truck. Correct. And again, you indicated that although you have an analysis regarding this flight path, it's an estimate and it could vary by a foot or so depending on where the person was either standing or on the ground when they fired it, correct? A small degree of error, but yes. Now, if a bullet doesn't strike anything, it goes a certain distance, correct? Correct. And if it does strike something, depending on what it strikes, that lessens the distance because it goes through a particular type of, of substance, correct? I can't determine the force of if that actually has happened in this situation, but I would assume it, when it strikes an object, some force is lowered from striking an object and continuing. But in this particular instance, you have a bullet that travels a certain distance, goes through a window, wood, vinyl, scrapes up against a mat, and then continues through another piece of glass, correct? Correct. Were, were you told that Lauren Cataract was shot twice and both those bullets exited out of the back of her body? At the time, I did not know if the bullets had exited her body or were inside her body. Well, if they did exit their, her body, Correct. They, they would travel uh, a certain distance based on what, if anything, it hit as it went through her body, correct? Correct. I have nothing further. Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn rises for a brief redirect with the detective. Judge, just to clarify that flight path, if I could. Go ahead. Detective, when you're talking about the front, the flight path from the front of the truck there, is that the approximate area where you're saying that the gun barrel could have originated the, the bullet shot? Correct. And so that would have been on the ground, for instance, here, if this was under the truck? Correct. And then you're indicating that along that flight path, it goes at an upward angle into the door? Yes. So would it be something like what I'm doing right now with my pen, the gun would be somewhere along this flight path going up into the side of the, the house? Correct. Edward Belinkus interjects to ask for a clarification. For the record, I think the demonstration is a little bit much taller than what... Well, it's up to the jury to determine. That's what's relevant here. Did I do that at the precise angle that you measured, Detective? It was, a, I believe, a 14-degree angle. Did you determine that with the protractor? Well, hold on. What was a 14-degree angle? The angle of the upward. This one? Yes. On the screen? Correct. Not what Mr. Shellhorn did? No, no, no. Okay. So on the All right. Just, just so we're clear. All right. It's 14-degree angle on the screen. Very good. Thank you, Detective. Belinkus again follows up for the defense. Could someone have been standing on the deck of that front porch and been struggling 
and shot the bullet at that angle and created the defects that you testified to? Again, if it was at a 40-degree angle and I couldn't determine the height determination. Nothing further. All right, you may step down. Thank you very much, Detective. Thank you, sir. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Prosecutor Shellhorn next calls to the stand Morris County Forensic Examiner and Firearms Specialist William Stitt. Like Detective Zaharopoulos, Stitt sports a shaved head. He wears a dark blue suit, white shirt, and a tie with light and dark blue patterns. Mr. Stitt's eyes are a steely blue. He does not appear to have eyebrows. For the first time in this trial, Assistant Prosecutor Alexander Bennett handles the questioning for the state. Bennett appears to be younger than his co-counsel Christopher Shellhorn. He sports short dark hair and wears a gray suit, a white shirt, and a red tie. After asking the witness to introduce himself to the jury, Bennett asks Mr. Stitt, um, where are you currently employed, sir? Uh, currently, I'm contracted with the Morris County Sheriff's Office. And what position do you hold in the Sheriff's Office? Uh, forensic Examiner. Um, and how long have you been in the present role of uh, Forensic Examiner? Uh, approximately four years. And can you generally explain your duties um, as a Forensic Examiner within the Sheriff's Office? Sure. I'm in charge of the um, Firearms Identification Unit, uh, both casework as well as Bennett then has Mr. Stitt lay out his extensive experience and training as a firearms expert as well as his nearly two decades of experience as a law enforcement officer. Without objection, Judge Stephen Taylor deems Stitt to be qualified as an expert in the area of firearms identification and examination. Mr. Stitt, can you explain to the jury um, what it means for a firearm to be operable? Uh, that it goes bang, basically. And when does it go bang, specifically? Specifically, sure. It's um, after the uh, trigger is pressed to the rear, discharging the weapon. And can you generally give an over, uh, overview of a general cycle of operation? For uh, semi-automatic, sure. Uh, the first would be a feed, load, lock, fire, and unlock. Um, and now, based on your last response, I could assume that there are different types of firearms? Yes, sir. And can you explain the difference between a revolver versus a pistol? Sure. Both of them are handguns. Semi-automatic weapons or pistols work a little different than um, revolvers. The, the big difference would be for the semi-automatic uh, pistols. It would be loaded with a magazine, um, whereas the uh, revolver would be loaded through a cylinder. After Mr. Stitt explains how a revolver works, Bennett asks him to explain how a pistol of the sort that was fired at Miss Canarac functions. Moving on to um, pistols specifically, um, are they loaded in a different way than the way you explained revolvers are loaded? Yes. And how is that done? Uh, that's done through the magazine. And can you explain what a magazine is to the jury? Sure. The magazine would be the item that would hold the cartridges for the automatic, um, semi-automatic pistol. And do the number of bullets that a firearm is capable of holding vary from firearm to firearm? Yes. Now, giving us a broad overview, what's the steps of operability testing you take procedurally when you test the firearm for operability? For operability? Sure. Uh, first thing what we do is we take it out of evidence. 
uh, we bring it back to our lab. First thing we do is photograph it overall. The reason why we photograph it is to show the condition that we received it in. Uh, then we do a visual inspection. Visual inspection is just to make sure everything looks okay, nothing's bent, broken, uh, the barrel's not obstructed, anything, any safety issues that might come up. Um, then after that, what we'll do is we will test fire the weapon. We'll take uh, two rounds from our supply, our ammo supply, load that weapon, and press the trigger. Now you said you test fire these weapons using ammunition from your supply, correct? Yes, sir. Is that always the case? Yes, sir. So if a farm is turned into your office for exam and it comes with ammunition with it, you do not use that ammunition in tests? We do not. Okay. And what's the reason for that? More our safety. We don't know if the other ammo is uh, reloads. We don't know who made them. So it's more of a safety issue. If they do, does come in and they're reloads, if we do comparisons, that kind of messes up for our comparisons. So we want the um, factory loaded ammo. Now, moving specifically to the case at hand, sometime in 2019, were you asked to examine firearms that were collected from 411 West Mill Road in the Long Valley? Yes, sir. And do you recall what firearms you were asked to review during that case? Sure. It was a uh, Ruger LC9S, which was a 9mm uh, semi-automatic pistol. There was a Colt Army 1917 revolver, a Colt Mark IV Series 80 semi-automatic pistol, and another revolver was a Frontier 22 caliber. So you said there were two pistols and two revolvers? Correct. Thank you. Besides the firearms themselves, were any other items turned over to you for this examination? Yes, sir. And what were those items? There was two magazines and two spent shell casings. And did either of those magazines um, have cartridges within them? Yes, sir. And those cartridges were within the magazine when it was turned over to your office. Correct. Bennett presents Mr. Stitt with the cartridge magazines for the Ruger that were taken from Barrison's farm after the shooting. And did you, during your examination, document how many rounds were within that magazine? Yes, sir, I did. And Mr. Stitt, looking at what's been marked three, I'm 362, do you see the rounds in that picture outside of the magazine? Yes, sir. And those rounds were uh, removed by you during the examination? Correct. Okay, and how many rounds did you remove from the magazine? Seven. And again, that's how this magazine was presented to you from the sheriff's office as retrieved by the scene. With the rounds inside the magazine. Yes, sir. Correct. Um, besides the two magazines, were any other items uh, examined by your office? Besides the handguns and the shell casings? Shell casings. So that's what I'm referring to. Okay. With regard to the magazines and the shell casings, can you determine if they were related to any firearms that you examined? The sh magazines and shell casings? Uh, uh, separately. So can you determine based on what you see with the magazines, if they belong to any specific farm that you examined? Yes, yes sir. And which farm did the magazines belong to? That was the Ruger LC9. Uh, Mr. Stitt, did you examine, how many shell casings did you examine during this examination? Two. And were those two shell casings you have in front of you um, the same as those you examined that day? Yes, sir. And which farm in particular are these shell casings related to? Uh, they they uh, match the uh, Ruger LC9S. Now, did you alter any reports um, as a result of your examinations? Yes, sir. Bennett enters the reports into evidence and asks the witness to cross-reference items in his reports with aspects of the Ruger pistol, which is also in evidence. Mr. Stitt, we'll speak specifically to the Ruger handgun. It should be on the floor next to you. It's been pre-marked S-177. Already entered the evidence. 177, sir? Yes, sir. And do you recognize that firearm? Yes, sir. Is that the same firearm that you examined on September 25th, 2019? Yes, sir. And did you have the opportunity to examine that particular firearm with regards to operability? 
Yes, sir. Bennett asks Mr. Stitt if the serial number of the Ruger in evidence matches the serial number of the weapon in his report, and Stitt says yes. The prosecutor then cycles through a series of photos with the witness to identify the Ruger and to describe the various parts of the weapon. During these descriptions, Bennett specifically asks Mr. Stitt about safety features of the gun, including the safety lock and the trigger safety. Bennett then moves on to ask about the loading of the weapon. Um, how do you uh, load and unload this firearm particularly? This particular one, um, with the magazine, would have to be loaded into the magazine lock. Uh, then the slide would have to be pulled to the rear. The slide would be released, and as the slide goes forward, it would load the next round. And after having pointed out the parts on this gun, you did mention there's a safety on this gun, aside from the trigger safety, is that correct? Yes, sir. And does that have any effect on another step that may have to be taken before the gun is fired? It can. If it's engaged, yes, you'd have to disengage the safety to fire the weapon. Um, ultimately, as a result of your examination, was this firearm deemed to be operable? Yes, sir. How many cartridges or rounds um, can this pistol hold at one time? This particular one has a seven-round magazine. And how many can the weapon actually hold? It would be eight. And it would be seven in the magazine and, and one in the chamber. And you test fire this pistol? Yes, sir. You testified earlier that shell casings are ejected from a firearm, correct? Correct. And that's after a <coughs> shot or a discharge? Yes. With regards to empty shell casings that are ejected, is there a particular side that they usually eject from? Um, typically it's to the right, the right side of the firearm. And when you say the right, what orientation are we referring to? As the shooter. Okay. So it would be the shooter's right? Correct. Uh, on this particular handgun, which side of the, of the gun is the ejection port on? On the right side. Um, do firearms leave specific marks on shell casings when they are fired? Yes. And can you explain what markings are typically left by a firearm on shell casing? Sure. Typically with the um, with semi-automatic uh, weapons, what we're looking for is several things. They'll leave impressions from the firing pin, from what's called the breech face, which is the part back towards the rear of the slide, and chamber marks. So when the empty casing gets extracted from the weapon, it can scratch on the walls of the chambers and create um, unique characteristics or striat. And after your test fires, you also then have shell casings, is that correct? Correct. So are you able to then compare shell casings from your test fires to shell casings from the ones turned into you for examination? Yes, sir. Well, can you describe the process of how those are compared? Certainly. Um, the way we do it, we take our two test fires from when we did the operability of the weapon. We'll put them on our comparison microscope. We will compare those looking for unique characteristics left behind from the weapon. We'll do our test fires first, and then we'll use the casings that we've collected from the scene. Again, you were given what's been marked as S179 and 180 for examination? Yes. And were you able to determine whether those shell casings were fired from any particular handgun? Yes. Which gun was that? That was the Ruger LC9. Um, and during the course of your examination, um, you took photographs? Yes, sir. Among those photographs were the ones we've viewed so far? Yes, sir. And did those photographs fairly and accurately depict the photographs that you took on September 25th, 2019? Yes, sir. After a brief break, Prosecutor Bennett then moves on to ask Mr. Stitt about the operability of the other weapons retrieved from the Barrison farm that day. Stitt testifies that the Colt Mark IV Series 80 semi-automatic pistol and one of the revolvers were inoperable because of mechanical defects in each weapon, but that one of the revolvers, a 45 caliber weapon, was in fact operable. After Prosecutor Bennett indicates he has no further questions, Judge Taylor invites the defense to take their turn with the witness. 
All right, cross-examination, Mr. Belinkus. That gun to the right that you just saw, that's the one that's inoperable, correct? Yes, sir. You, you have no idea how long that gun has been inoperable, do you? No, sir. You testified that the forty-five was operable, correct? Yes, sir. And is that a much larger caliber handgun? Yes, sir. Much more deadly because of the size of the bullet? Not necessarily, sir. No, please do. Sustained. All right. Any follow-up, Mr. Bennett? Redirect, I mean? No, Judge. I think we're fine. All right. You may step down. Thank, Thank you. you very much. And with that, Judge Taylor closes out day five, the end of the first week of the proceedings, and we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we hear the testimony of Jason Gould, a detective with the Morris County Prosecutor's Office at the time of the Canarac shooting who investigated the incident as part of the prosecutor's major crimes unit. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.